Hey everyone, uh, Joey here. I'm recording this separate introduction because the episode that you're about to hear is a rather special one and also a difficult one. It was difficult to record, it was difficult to prepare, and it's even been difficult in post in the sense that we've been, um, those of us on the team, kind of wondering and asking ourselves, well, is this the right time for this? Maybe we should wait some some more. Maybe, you know, obviously people may not have the capacity to even think about what's maybe more long-term because they're dealing about what's happening now. And so I wanted to start by saying that these are very valid critiques and in no way would I want to downplay them. At the same time, I and now the team joining this project have been trying to and, you know, myself, even before kind of growing this team for the past three years, trying to do something different with the fight these times. Not that I think it's special in that sense. Not that I think I have a unique responsibility. Not that I I think, like, no one else can do this. Like, it's nothing like that. It's just that I have given myself a certain period of time, if you want. It's even undefined. I, initially, I told myself maybe five years. Now it's going to be maybe ten years. I have no idea, really. I may, you know, it may end up becoming too much by next year. I have no idea. But I've given myself this task, if you want, after years and years and years of trying to approach a certain problem or problematic, if you want, from the various angles. My stake in this are pretty clear, I think, for everyone who knows me. I'm Lebanese. I'm Palestinian. I have family and friends, especially in Lebanon. But I have a lot of acquaintances and friends and colleagues in Israel-Palestine as well. What has been happening in Gaza since October 7th, when Hamas fighters breached the militarized fence, separating Gaza from Israeli communities in the south, killing some 1,400 people and taking over 200 people hostages, committing one of the most brutal massacres that... And obviously the response by the Israelis, while predictable, because the Israelis tend to the Israeli defense forces specifically, the Israeli government specifically, has tended to treat the entirety of Gaza for quite some time now as a hostile space, ignoring the civilians on the ground, pre- treating them as, as either demographic threats or potential terrorists or um, human animals, quite literally a quote here by, I think it was the IDF chief of staff of one of those high-ranking military guys. Um, who said this, I believe, the day of or the day after uh, the massacre of, by Hamas. So, so the response, while not, while not unpredictable, has still been very difficult to take in and has been honestly uh, terrifying. I think as of time of recording this intro separately, the episode that you're going to listen to was recorded a few days prior, but I'm recording this on October 27th. Some over at least 7,000 Palestinians uh, have been killed. These include, I haven't even kept count of how many children murdered, some 2,000 or something, some large number like that, that my mind is incapable of comprehending. And at the same time, in the West Bank, settler violence and army raids have also killed dozens of Palestinians, as well as in what is uh, Israel proper, Palestinian citizens of Israel, as well as leftist Israelis, have been arrested for speaking out. Many fear for their lives. Some have had already their lives threatened by um, Netanyahu's backers, including um, Israeli Jews who, leftists especially, who are anti-occupation activists, 
who have dealt with risks in the past, risks that they themselves usually say, you know, maybe not don't compare with the risks that Palestinian citizens of Israel, let alone Palestinians under military occupation, have to deal with. But even by those criteria, and let's face it, the bar is quite low, the threats that they've been uh, facing in recent weeks um, have been severe. And at the same time, Western governments, allies of Israel, have been cracking down on free speech by both Palestinians and Jews in the West who dare to criticize the Israeli state and its violence. We're seeing this in Germany, especially, where a, a unprecedented level of crackdown, unprecedented, I mean, in Germ- Germany's recent history, I don't need to tell anyone what Germany's l- slightly less recent history is like, but not even beyond Germany, from France to the UK to the US, we have the president of the United States making things up, literally lying on camera and say- saying things that Either he has been told are true, in which case we have to worry about his um, sources, in which case we should be really worried about, or uh, he just is fine with lying. And at the same time, just yesterday, Switzerland announced that it was uh, stopping funding for, I think, six, I believe, Palestinian and some five, if I'm not mistaken, Israeli NGOs, or five and six, or six and five, I don't remember, who work on anti-occupation, Palestinian human rights, uh, minority rights, and so on and so forth. So this is what we're dealing with. And I want folks listening to this to understand that as much as you can, and if you are capable or if you're able to kind of make space for this, if you're not, it's completely fine. Just listen to something else. Honestly, it's completely fine. But why am I even recording this, right? Um... I don't usually do that. I've done it just a few times when I felt the need to explain in advance what you're about to listen. I won't do the entire thing because might as well then just listen to the entire episode and then tell me what you think. But I want you to keep this in mind, that the Fire These Times is not a news podcast. We don't have the capacity, we don't have the finances for it to be a news podcast. And frankly, I don't particularly think I'd be good at it. What I have learned, if you want, through trial and error, as someone who used to be a journalist, worked as an editor, and now sees myself as mostly a writer and researcher, focusing, for that matter, on Lebanon, on Syria, and as well on Israel-Palestine, I have sort of felt the need for more folks who are quote-unquote on our side to be having the conversation that you're about to hear. And to be, again, clear, I'm not saying you have to agree with everything you listen to. And I'm not saying if you disagree that you're a bad person. I'm just saying that there's a certain level of discomfort in having such conversations that, as long as they don't actively hurt anyone, of course, should be held, should be uh, dealt with, should be reckoned with. And that's what I hope we've managed to do with this conversation. I don't know. Maybe we we failed. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is that we, me, me and and, uh, some of our teammates decided to record something that is more maybe evergreen and more long term than what the situation perhaps on the ground right now demands it. And the reason for that is, again, simple capacity. So in order to compensate for that, we've included in the description a whole bunch of links. All of the NGOs and associations and individuals who are reporting what's happening on the ground, who are defending human rights, who are challenging not just the horrifying repression uh, and violence against Palestinians, in uh, Israel-Palestine, and to a lesser but significant still extent, many Israelis 
who are willing to stand up against the occupation, who are willing to oppose this uh, supremacist worldview that the Netanyahu government and its far-right allies um, has been trying to push for the past few years. So this is what this episode is. If you want to listen to more quote-unquote newsy episodes like learning about what's happening on the ground as it's happening and whatnot, we are including all of those other podcasts, other media outlets, other op-eds, commentaries, and so on in the show notes. And the last thing, and maybe most important thing before you listen to this, we need to recognize that what is happening in Gaza right now is effectively a genocidal campaign. The claims, the, the statements by the, uh, the Israeli state and its allies have been pretty clear. At best, they're looking at a massive depopulation of Gaza. At best. Because they want to quote-unquote destroy Hamas or eradicate Hamas and all of that stuff. And of course, they have decided that the way to do so, the way to defeat that enemy of theirs, is to carpet bomb the entire place. And level entire buildings and murder journalists and destroy schools and kindergarten and hospitals. And do so live on air. So if you feel like this is too much, again, please listen to something else. If you are willing uh, to go through this episode, I am genuinely grateful. Please feel free to take your time doing so. We go through some fairly difficult things. There have been even some minor disagreements here and there. But I think that all in all, we're all on the same page. We're all genuinely concerned for our friends and loved ones back home. We all genuinely believe that a better tomorrow is possible. Although, as you will see from the third question, the what can be done question, some of us were, let's say, more optimistic than others. Some of us were more pessimistic than others. And I think that's normal. And this is part of the discomfort that I... I feel is necessary. I think the four of us who were facilitated in this conversation by Daniel come from a place of grief, come from a place of trauma, of sadness, of, of anxiety, of despair. And changing those emotions, or at least ch- channeling them towards something more positive is something that I would like to do. If I, whether I do it or not, whether I manage to do it or not, I genuinely have no idea. Genuinely, I have no idea. I'm trying. And I'm ho- I hope that folks listening to this, that you'll have enough kindness in your hearts to recognize at least that. That there are genuine attempts being made here. A lot of work is being put in this in this, not just this episode, but this project in general. And I hope that counts for something. So we divide this episode in three parts. Grief, thinking through this moment, and what can be done. It's really straightforward. Reflections about how we feel. It's how we started. This was Daniel's idea, and I think it was a brilliant idea because it, it helped us. I, I don't know if it's like put at ease necessarily, but it helped us understand that we're, or remind us in any case, that we are fallible and we're capable of contradictory emotions and thinkings and so on. Thinking through this moment is literally reflecting on what is happening now. And obviously, it's linked to the first bit, and it's also linked to the last bit, which, as I mentioned before, what can be done. So the three guests will be introduced right after the short, like, intro music. And yeah, guys, uh, thanks a lot for listening to this. I apologize for sending you a very long intro at the beginning, which is unusual, as you know. But I thought it was important to do so. And... I would be genuinely, genuinely interested in hearing what you all think of this episode after listening to it. 
And even if you disagree, please explain to me how. Uh, why, I mean. Tell me why you disagree. Um, what is it that you thought maybe uh, we could have done better at? And I promise you, we will take that into consideration. We will not be responding to insults and bad faith arguments and, you know, there's no time for that anymore. The The times we're living in are, are too critical. Um, I, I don't feel like we can afford this. So anyway, thank you for listening as always. Um, and take care, everyone. Welcome to the Fire These Times. On this episode, we'll be hosting a Palestine-Israel roundtable with esteemed guests that we'll introduce in a second. My name is Daniel Voskoboynik. I'll be a co-chair of this conversation. I'm a Barcelona-based journalist, poet, and researcher working at the intersections of human rights, climate justice, and historical memory. I recently joined the Fire These Times as a co-host, and I'll be facilitating this conversation alongside Joey. I'd like to introduce um, the first participant of this circle, and that's Dan Alcourt, a researcher in political science and an assistant professor at the University of Richmond. Dana works on state society relations in the Arab world with topics like authoritarianism and international intervention. She has published in peer-reviewed journals such as PS Political Science and Politics, Journal of Global Security Studies, Middle East Law and Governance, Siyasat Arabia, an Arabic peer-reviewed journal, Contemporary Arab Affairs, Parameters, and more. And she's also the author of Polarized and Demobilized, Legacies of Authoritarianism in Palestine. A regular guest of the Fire These Times, Dana has recently co-written an essay with Leila Shami, Joey Ayub, and Romeo Kokriatsky for the South-South Movement entitled A View of Anti-Imperialism from the Periphery. She's also going to be a more regular member of the Fire These Times. And I'll hand over to you, Dana. Yeah, thank you, Daniel. Um, so I will go ahead and introduce the other uh, participants. Yair Wallach is a social and cultural historian of modern Palestine and Israel at SOAS, the University of London, studying the entangled and relational histories of Jews and Palestinians. His work has focused primarily on visual and material culture and on the urban fabric as sites and vehicles of contestation and transformation in late Ottoman and British Mandate Palestine. He's also the author of the 2020 book, A City in Fragments, Urban Text and Modern Jerusalem, and has most recently published in The New Statesman a piece entitled The Deadly Logic of the Existential War, warnings that the escalating Israel and Hamas conflict is heading towards genocide should be heeded. I'm sure that'll be in the show notes. Uh, Orly Noy is an editor at Local Call, a Hebrew language news site committed to democracy, peace, equality, social justice, transparency, <clears throat> freedom of information, and resisting occupation. She's also a political activist with the Balad Political Party and a translator of Farsi poetry and prose. She's the chair of Beth Salem's executive board. Uh, her writings deal with the lines that intersect and define her identity as a Mizrahi, a female leftist, a woman, a temporary migrant living inside a perpetual immigrant, and the constant dialogue between them. She, re she recently published a piece for Knights of a Tumag entitled Enough of the Warlords, There is Another Way. Thank you both for joining us. So the way we're going to do this is we have, because this is a very difficult topic, obviously, and at the same time, this is not a news podcast, I will put all of the newsy related stuff, I mean, as many as I can find, of course, in the description with links and everything for folks listening to this, they, they can follow and read there. Um, and Daniel has very kindly sort of organized this conversation, which we will follow to some extent, but this is informal. This is a round table. So we can, of course, take as many liberties as we need. 
in let's say three different themes that are of course interrelated and um daniel i can ask you now if you don't mind to introduce those and maybe start with the first one after that thank you joey so today we're going to be moving back and forth in time through three parts we're going to be opening a space for grief in this moment right now um it's impossible to really start without the grief that many of us are are wading through and living through um, and then we're going to move towards a bit of a deeper past perspective. What does this moment mean looking towards the future and looking towards the past? Um, in what ways are we facing the unprecedented? In what, face, in what ways are we facing the old? In what ways are we facing the new? And then at the end, we'll turn towards bridges. What are the possibilities? Um, what is the hope that we can build from this moment? But to get there, to get to that bridge, we might have to start with a space of grief. Um, the last 17 days and much more have been tremendous and um, words um, are incredibly insufficient to encapsulate anything that I think a lot of us uh, are going to be wanting to talk about. But I'd like to invite all of us into the space to start with the grief for us to share a little bit on how we're meeting this moment and how what these what these 17, 18 days have, have been like, felt like and meant to us. And of course, this is the bit where no one knows who's going to start. Um, Dana, I can ask you if you want, if I don't want to put you on the spot. Otherwise, I can go first. Um, no, I, because I, I'm living not in Palestine. So I, I don't, I feel like I would be monopolizing space if I speak first. Like, I can't possibly be dealing with more grief than the people that are living there. So I don't know, maybe Orly can go first. Uh, I think uh, we all, I mean, there is enough grief to go around for everybody then I think it's um I mean I find it uh, very very hard to because I'm not sure I mean actually I'm sh I sure I haven't been able still to process um because one catastrophe is chasing the other what happened on October 7th was I mean it um for us Israeli Jews I think it was a sort of an unbelievable earthquake, something out of the ordinary, unbelievable. There was a lot of chaos because nobody gave any uh, reliable information and the numbers, I mean, we just couldn't figure out what was going on. And then the first thing was a sense of fear that I have never felt before. By the end of the day, on, on that Saturday, my older daughter, she's 24, a veteran activist against uh, the apartheid and occupation. She's been arrested several times, but she couldn't fall asleep from the fear uh, that maybe not all of the, the Hamas militants were caught and maybe they're making their ways, their way to Jerusalem where we live. And we needed to actually go physically to the shelters in the neighborhood, showing her that there are safe spaces near. And, and then the fear was replaced by a whole different sort of fear because, I mean, anybody who knows Israel knows anything about Israel. It was very clear that there is going to be, I mean, that all hell is going to break loose now. I mean, we have several, we have three field researchers in Gaza, in Bethlehem, and I mean, what we are doing basically is just checking up 
with one another and checking up to see if they're alive on a daily basis. And, and, and right now, I think my deepest emotion is one of uh, any, a very deep sense of uh, solitude. Because one of the things that also happened is the complete shattering of the what I believe to be my political camp, which was very much needed at times like this. And, and we found out that it was completely gone, that almost completely gone, that um, what, what I understood as um, all the... The morals, the moral principles, the political analysis that made the world, you know, that made some sense for me over my tools to make sense of the world. All of a sudden, I, I, I keep seeing all of my friends from my political camp completely deserting the, those principles and those analyses and just, you know, going back to the, uh, to the tribe, to the Jewish tribe, uh, joining the sort of uh, for granted approach that yes, Gaza should be erased, and uh, yes, I mean it's it's unfortunate, but we have no other way. And it's like in my head now, I'm left almost alone with an incredible amount of grief, of sadness, of of worrying. And, and chaos, and I'm almost completely alone with it. That's, that's my big. I'm sorry, it's not very coherent, but uh, that's where I am right now. No, that, that makes perfect sense to me. I think it resonates with all of us. Yeah, so I, I live in the United States. I don't have family, immediate family in, in uh, Gaza. I, I know I have some extended family I've never met. Yeah, so it's it's not as immediate, but I think I agree uh, with what was, what was said earlier about like feeling alone in this space. Um, I think uh, Ariel Angel of Jewish Currents wrote uh, I think a wonderful piece um, where she she talked about how it is a failure of our movements that we haven't prepared for this moment for this kind of moment. And I think that's right. I mean, I, I do see myself as kind of on the periphery of a of a lot of a lot of this a lot of these movements anyway. Maybe I'm more used to the aloneness, but but yeah, it's just it, things broke down so quickly in terms of our our political orientations and and how we understand um, you know what's happened, how to make sense of where where to move forward with this. Um, and then you know, to be really honest, obviously, what's happening in Gaza is the worst, like the worst we've ever seen. And so I feel almost ashamed to bring up the things that the Palestinian diaspora has dealt with because I know it's not comparable, but, but at the same time, like that is, that is something that has been weighing on my mind, which is that like, we are being so suffocated. Um, the Palestinian diaspora. I mean, I, I know that Palestinians, it kind of depends on where you live, but I could say the American context has been so, um, so vicious, so like fascistic. So like, yeah, every every gain we have made to be able to be openly Palestinian and, and to talk about Palestine has gone into retreat essentially. Um, and and that has been, that has compounded that aloneness because I, 
I'm just paranoid. I'm I'm constantly paranoid about who around me is actually an ally and and who who around me will will stand up for me to keep me safe when uh, times get tough. Um, and so, yeah, it's just been really like I wrote something on social media. I was like, I I don't I don't know anything anymore. I don't know anything. I don't recognize anyone anymore. And it feels like a collapse. And um, also not very pithy, but yeah, uh, we've just been dealing with that different layers of grief. So uh, I'll say a few things. I mean, the first thing was watching all, all this unfold on social media, which it was a very strange and horrible and mesmerizing experience. I mean, you know, this starting from the day of 7th October, uh, following people I'm following begging for help for their relatives or for themselves. And you know that you're, you know, you just don't know if they're going to be alive in a couple of hours. And that's, that's, and, and then later on, the same in Gaza. So people I know online kind of talking about their, their families and their loved ones. And again, they don't know if they're alive and they don't know if they will be alive. And that's, there's something, you know, and you, and, and you can't do anything, which is, it's, it's very tough. I think, so obviously, I mean, uh, I don't know, none of the people I know, the first circle of family or friends was hurt, but a lot of people I know had family and friends hurt, uh, killed, um, taken hostage, bombed, and so forth. You know, that's obviously makes it different, I think, that's... uh, because you can imagine that person. I think that's kind of, it's kind of obvious for Jewish Israelis in the case of other Jewish Israelis, but for me, kind of gradually over the last 20 years, knowing more and more Palestinians, including people from Gaza, you know, once you can, these images start to have a meaning that you didn't, they didn't have before. And that's really, it's kind of, it always feels like you're being hit in the stomach. The moments I found myself breaking down is the moment where Palestinian colleagues and friends reached out to ask if I'm okay or to say something. And that's the kind of, really the moment where I kind of, I was kind of whipping uh, because first to have that kind of, you know, to be allowed that kind of sense of grief in a, in, in a way that you feel held for a minute, but also to, to the tragedy that, you know, that it doesn't have to be this way. And you know, and, and none of us wanted this way. And and still we watched this happen and we kind of knew it was coming in one shape or form. And that's the you know, that's the moment where I just can't hold it together anymore. And I should say, I mean, this is something I wrote in my new statesman piece. I mean, especially the for again, for Jews, the descriptions from seventh of October inevitably sounded uh, kind of sounded like pogroms early 20th century it's kind of very like the images of kids hiding and you know while their parents are killed this is something that kind of touches a button that is just you know it doesn't matter that you know this is not the same you know that this is not uh, you know jews in europe facing anti-semitism no it's a very different situation and and you know the context inevitably it's going to touch some kind of 
button in of of insecurity and so forth. So it's which kind of it's not it's no surprise that people are kind of going berserk. Um, everyone is going berserk. I mean, people I people I've followed they were extremely cynical about Zionism or or whatever, and suddenly become Hasbara agents. I mean, it's 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 tough. Yeah, it's tough to see. May I add one more thing? I also forgot to mention how angry I was. Like we, I talked about the grief, but I was so angry because, like, I'm I'm not even as seasoned a person in this space as you know as the others. But like, I just feel like we've been screaming for so long, for years that exactly as you mentioned, yeah, like this is gonna happen. Something like this is gonna happen. Like the status quo is unsustainable, and I I was just so angry. I was I was angry at, well, like the international actors that led us to that point. I'm like. Yeah, obviously livid at the Americans and 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 all of that, but like, I'm also a little bit angry at like, I mean, I'm not angry at the surprise. I know that like the scope of it was surprise, was surprising. Um, but I I just think like, what were people thinking? Like, we've been saying this, and and you know Hamas experts have been saying this. If it's not Hamas, it's going to be something else. Like it's 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 coming. And so yeah, I just want to say like also. Anger defines a lot of how I've been feeling. Sorry to cut you off. Go ahead. No, no, thanks for that. I mean, I, I was gonna also like focus in on the anger because I, I've on also a very personal note, like my my wife gave birth about a couple about eight days ago now, and she's a the baby is a preemie. She's a micro preemie, as they're called, so she's very premature. But we are. As difficult as that in and of itself is to hold and to, to comprehend and whatnot, we have been managing relatively well on that front because as it happens, the hospital that is not too far from where we live is one of the best apparently in the world for that specific type of care. So the, just the idea that I could leave my daughter in this incubator for months and actually know like for a fact that she's going to be safe and contrast that in my head, like the thing that my, 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 my wife said, like it kind of broke her and the both of both of us had to she more than me obviously as well now like take a real break from just just checking anything because obviously our priority had to be right now just as as much positive energy as is humanly possible towards uh towards towards Sophia towards my daughter and so that was the the weird it's like a dilemma in some sense because I feel grateful that I am not there or I feel grateful that she is not there specifically and the there is kind of where this gets messy because I, I, you know, grew up in Lebanon, not in Israel, Palestine, but I'm originally from, my grandfather was originally from Haifa who passed away a couple of years ago. And when I heard the news as it kind of all filtered in, if you want, I was like, I was grateful that he wasn't with us. I was grateful that like, he doesn't need to see this right now. And then the anger um <laughs> came in and then it's been on like anger mode for like two weeks now, I think more or less, uh, mixed in with grief and mixed in with sadness, but like the others are very paralyzing. And so I'm, I'm able to compartmentalize them as much as I can, just like out of quote unquote experience for whatever that is worth. But the anger, the, the recklessness, the, 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 the recklessness of the day of, which I done, as you said, like I wasn't surprised that something was going to happen. Um, I was maybe surprised is not the word, but horrified at, the line that was crossed in in how Hamas acted specifically, because, and this is like me being extremely naive in retrospect. 
I expected, as I do with Hezbollah for like different reasons, like a certain quote unquote logic to certain acts and actions. And this felt um, beyond that. Of course, also knowing how Israel would respond as soon as they, the IDF sort of got its shit together, quote unquote, uh, because there was clearly a surprise at the very beginning because they were caught off guard clearly. Knowing that this, or if this is a line that was crossed and this is going to, from like, from what I know from the back, the, some of the research that I had done in the past, and I also went through SOAS as where Yair is currently in my master's, happened to have been on, on, like, at least on Jewish history, because I focus on Yiddish and Hebrew, politics of Yiddish and Hebrew. And so I read a lot of the texts that allowed me to understand that there's going to be a very emotional response for understandable, obviously not justifiable, but understandable reasons. And the distinction between the two, how difficult it is to make that distinction online is one of the frustrations that I have. But then the recklessness of the so-called international community and the Biden's speeches, ma- making things up that he clearly has not seen. And Rishi Sunak, just one of the, uh, one of, we are cursed to have people like him right now uh, in power at a specific the time that we're going through and then the German response, which has like gone into full anti-Palestinian hysteria, um, just so many different things at the same time. And me being in this space right now where I'm like in this, you know, international city of Geneva where nothing really happens and we complain about how boring it is. And now I'm very grateful of how boring it is. And then going to Lebanon, because I'm, as I said, I grew up in Beirut, my family, most of my friends are in Beirut. And I know that Lebanon is always like, one or two degrees separation away from anything that is happening if it, if it gets to a certain scale. And when I understood, and this is when Dana and I, we are in this group, we've been kind of texting live basically as things were happening and our responses and everything, the reactions, I was terrified of like, if people, everyone doesn't understand that as horrifying as this is right now, that it can actually get worse because Hezbollah hasn't really entered the game yet. And I'm hoping they don't, but they haven't. This is not actually them being super active about it. I, as someone who's like, I'm, I'm partly in exile due to them. I've dealt with them. I, in many ways, lived in the same neighborhoods for some time. Uh, and I especially been following what they've been doing in Syria. M- most importantly, um, uh, without maybe sounding too extreme about it, but like Hamas is a joke in comparison to Hezbollah uh, in terms of their capacity. And I was kind of terrified that the responses of the Americans is to, well, we're going to send some boats and, you know, aircraft carriers at the sea. And that's somehow gonna, I don't know, be enough of a threat that they're going to understand that, uh, not you know, don't do anything. But as far as they are concerned, Hamas has shown that they can do stuff. And Hezbollah knows that they are stronger than Hamas, so they can do stuff too. And just this, this, I ended up like, I, I was not, I've been, I haven't been sleeping well, clearly, for both my personal family reasons and also what's happening back home. But then in addition to all of this, seeing the sheer, it's a mix of, I can only describe it as helplessness and cynicism, deep cynicism on quote unquote our side. And here I'm focusing spe- specifically on the Lebanese side has been difficult to watch. Um, friends of mine who are not necessarily super active are now very active online because everyone kind of feels the need to say something, to yell, some, to do something. 
And because they may not know of the Syrian context, for example, are sharing like, you know, Assadists and Hezbollah supporters and, and all of that. Uh, and most of them responded like calmly, let's say, when I point out who are those people that they're sharing and why this can be damaging and all of that. But not all. Some of them were like, fuck it, fuck it, fuck it all. Fuck everything. It doesn't matter. They are, they are not fans of Hezbollah, but they're suddenly like, who else is going to do anything? You know, th- this is the attitude they started developing. I mean, if you think about like who benefits the most from this kind of dynamic, like the worst actors, yani, yani, the anti-Semites, the Islamophobes, the tankies, like they are being vindicated. And we, I don't, I mean, whatever we that exists against these kinds of hateful, hateful groups is like, we have failed. We haven't been able to articulate something better. I mean, we do, art- like, people are working very hard, but, like, you know what I mean? Like, there is a system, there is a, there is a failure there. There is, like, we have to recognize it and critique it as much as we can. Uh, now, all of the worst actors imaginable from, like, all possible sides have, like, the perfect story. Like, the Germans suddenly are teaching us about anti Semitism, which I will never get over with. I'm, I'm still losing my mind over this. Everyone has something that they can now use. If they want to be anti immigrant, they have it. If they have, if they want to be Islamophobic, they have it. On the Hezbollah side, you have like, um, muftis and sheikhs and like supporters and allies and whatnot saying the most genocidal thing you can imagine, uh, saying and whatnot and even throwing in, throwing in queer people under the bus because why not? And you know, stuff like that is like, I, I, this is why I'm like really worried that there's a powder keg, keg, I'm bad with expressions, like just around us. And if the temperature is not lowered, uh, by any means necessary at this point, it's just going to continue. And war and these things have a way of, as the Lebanese civil war kind of proved time and time again, have a way of taking logic of their own. Whatever the initial spark is will not be like, you know, phase two or three or four or five or six. They end up taking a different life of their own. And that's what really worries me. As, as you were speaking, I also thought about the the extent of, of the emotions that Hamas attack uh, arose. And, and I, mean, it, there, I mean, it's needless to say that it was really a heinous crime. But at the same time, you know, I'm ki- I think about the white world's conception of the aesthetic of death and of killing and of violence. And this is something that became so vivid in the past couple of, of weeks that there is, if, if, if your violence, no matter how extreme, no matter how uh, lethal and and without distinction against civilians, but as long as it it has the aesthetics provided by the very sophisticated technology of the white world, then you are on the right side of things. But if if your violence, because you don't have the same advanced technology is um is not a, as aesthetic then you like it's very easy to push you and everything that can be related to you out of the definition of humanity 
And this is a privilege that the, the white world is taking right now. And it's it's also at the basis of the situation that we are, I mean, the, our entire reality in a way. I'd love to come back to, I think, um, the stakes at this moment. Um, that I think that everyone's referring to. I think there's a simultaneous intensity of the grief and the anger right now, but also also hearing a lot of fear around what's to come. And I think also for a lot of, um, you know, I think noticing as well, Israel-Palestine ignites, and especially what's been happening these days, ignites conversations and transformations and movements across the world, unlike I think many, many other conflicts. I think though there is still an underestimation of the what's at stake in this particular moment. So I'd like to maybe, in, in the interest maybe of popular education, um, I'd maybe invite you all to maybe reflect on, also I know we, we have a beautiful assembly of historians, activists, scholars, and I think I heard you, Yair, talk about history, um, like historians aim get into history to to know that things can be different, things could be done differently, things could always be, there's a contingency there. So I think I'd be curious to ask you all, what are the stakes at this moment? What are we facing from your perspective? And why is it so important also from, I think we need to name those stakes before we get to the bridges and how we can deal with them appropriately to talk about what are we facing right now and why is it important to name it at its scale? I can start. Um, I think the the, uh, biggest risk at the moment is uh, is a regional escalation that would uh, allow and lead to a significant uh, expulsion of Palestinians from, uh, you know, from Palestine, Israel. Not sure where, which parts exactly, but and and quite potentially accompanied by the killing of tens of thousands. I mean, I think that's a, a completely possible uh, scenario, and that is the most, you know, that's that's it, that is the first thing that needs to be prevented. I think this is. I'm. I've been saying this for a few years now, um, sometimes ridiculed by people or sometimes, you know, uh, uh, anyway, but I think this is, I, I hope that people see this as a, a real possibility that has to be prevented. And we know that things can happen in a month that later you cannot change forever. Um, and that is, you know, that we need to to really as much as we can, as much as we can do, we have to be aware of that and therefore prioritize um, accordingly. L- longer term, so if we manage to avoid that, which is which is possible, I'm a bit more optimistic now than I was a week ago. Then there are potential, you know, I can see also uh, various positive uh, scenarios and transformations, and I, I think. The sustainability of Israel's model of domination is clearly has, has has been proven wrong, and this is clear. And that that creates an opening. I would say that um, yeah, and there are moments of 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 light. So, I, I mean, I think many of us have seen the images of uh, one of hostages uh, released, Yochi um, Lifshitz turning around very consciously, very assertively, looking the Hamas guy in the eyes and shaking his hand and saying shalom, which he was a bit surprised, but then kind of reciprocated. That's a moment of taking things into your hand and kind of showing that this is 
not the only way that yes i mean horrible things happen but you can see a way beyond that and i think that potential exists i don't know exactly in what form i would say that in the medium and long term it's very clear to me that it either will be a future of mutual recognition um and 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 recognition of humanity of all people living between the river and the sea and their rights and or it will be some kind of scenario of ethnic cleansing um uh, on a massive scale i mean i think if you know failing to put forward commitment to humanity and to um and to humanity of all would result in ethnic cleansing and it's kind of the power lays with israel is considerably more powerful than any other actor even if the idf was you know was proven quite you know its weaknesses were on display on that day but not to mistake that with actual profound weakness that you know that or any kind of a that can be somehow overcome militarily i think that's that, that would be extremely stupid to overestimate uh, uh, the weakness of the idf even if, if it failed on that day so that's um and that's why i'm saying this first of all you know yeah, first of all, the kind of the onus on Israelis to recognize the basic rights of Palestinians to be there and to be there as they are and as full human beings with full human rights. And that is, you know, that's the first. But also I think that the, and this is the more difficult part, that there needs to be also recognition from Palestinians and to imagine kind of, you know, to imagine uh, you know, the full legitimacy of Jewish Israelis in the land. And this is something that Palestinians kind of like, it wasn't an urgency for them to to have to kind of to deal with that and to, you know, and why why would you have to deal with this when you are the victim and where you are so vulnerable? But if you don't have that vision, especially if after what happened uh, three weeks ago, it's much easier to sell to the Israeli public that it's either us or them. There is no other way. It's, it's existential. Somebody has to be destroyed, and therefore it has to be them. If you're unable to show that this is not the way, you have, I don't see a way to counter it. Can I ask a question? Um, because, I mean, obviously you're you're so much more aware of Israeli public opinion, and like I, I hear snippets here and there, but I'm not as, as um, you know, it's not my area of focus at all. So, I mean... I think everything you're saying co makes complete sense to me that there was a weakness and that this this model is unsustainable. And I think that there is that discussion, like in the Ha'ar, it's like editorial and all of that. But I don't know, like I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely asking, like how much is this being discussed? How much is like the sustainability of the model being discussed? Because it seems like at the level of decision-making, on the Israeli side and on the American side, there there's like there's no serious discussion about what October seventh says about the sustainability of this model. In fact, there's a doubling down. And so I'm I'm like for me I'm I'm just a generally depressed person. Also, like maybe this is just like a character weakness of mine. Like I I'm like I don't I don't see like I hope that we can put forward that kind of vision so that like we do avoid that existential uh or i mean making it more existential than it already is but uh, i'm wondering like how realistically how much are people talking about this 
So probably Ori is better positioned to answer this than me. Uh, but I would say three things. I mean, first, that the, the demand for revenge is deafening. I mean, it's like, it's like, this is like, the the first and and often the only thing you hear at the moment. There are quite a lot of people warning against that, analysts and commentators and so forth. They're usually not in the TV studios with which the programs that everyone watches, but there are a lot of people, including Oli, but also other, you know, including quite centrist people saying, no, stop, this is not going anywhere. And there are various voices. I I don't know. I think the only thing I can say that Israeli society is quite dynamic in many ways. Things can shift very, um, very quickly to the worse, but also sometimes to the better. So that's kind of. Um, so I I don't think that I think it would be wrong to um, say that the potential isn't there. I mean, one example is, on the one hand, there is a backlash against Palestinian citizens of Israel, um, and and. Uh, you know, and it's really worrying, but there's also recognition of kind of uh, shared fate in some ways. And so it hasn't escalated to, you know, the kind of riots and that we saw in 2021 and, and, and attacks so far. So that kind of leaves some kind of, of room for, um, you know, tentative, uh, not full pessimism, let's put it this way. Yeah, I, I I completely agree with uh, Yair, but I would define right now the attitude among uh, many Israelis towards the use of violence in Gaza as sort of the way that an addicted person would treat heroin. I mean, he knows as he uses it that it's incredibly bad for him, that it can lead to his... Uh, ultimate death eventually but he as he uses it he's he he needs it and there is always a sense that one more dose and it will fix me and then i will uh, you know i will give up i i think that the sense of the incredible sense of revenge is shared by everyone right now so and and what's worrying also that there, there is no foreseeable like a, a picture of victory something that israelis need to say okay we achieved that so now you know we, we can uh, retreat with some dignity it's it's nowhere to be seen. i mean what what would it be even like it's not going to be the head of ismail Aniya or or bombeda or yahya sinwar that's not going to so where i find some sense of optimism which will come, I think, a, a long time after the dust will set. But there is, and this is what I'm seeing very clearly, and not only a tremendous amount of anger towards Netanyahu's personally, but also towards the the uh, settler settlement project. Partially, or or a big part of it is because. The troops, the military troops that were supposed to be on 7th October in the south protecting the southern border were relocated to protect settlers, which when while they were pogroming against the Palestinians uh, in the West Bank. I think that in that sense, the Israeli public had enough. I mean, take, I mean, the, right now the sentiment is okay. 
we are united now. We are taking. We are doing what the government is not doing. And the, let me. There is no state right now in Israel. There's just simply no state. It's, it's completely paralyzed, and the citizens are taking care of everything by themselves. So I think that the the sentiment that I keep hearing more and more is. We will deal with Netanyahu. Let us just get over that crisis. But then you will, I mean, get the hell out of our lives and take your crazy settler fascists with you. If I find any shred of optimism is is in in, in that sentiment right now. Can I jump in about the Palestinian side? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, very quickly. And then you can go. It's, it's, I think we're going to complement each other anyway. Like I think it just emphasizes how important turning down the heat in that case actually like turning down the temperature i mean is right now and part of what worries me is that i can imagine being in netanyahu's brain right now maybe understanding this at least his allies also understanding this and so having actually an incentive not to turn down the heat and actually doing the opposite and what worries me is as i said like i don't expect anything out of netanyahu other than what we already see and because we've known him for some time now uh, but it's the powers that do have some influence. They do have some say in, in what happens. Not that they control Israel or anything like that, but they're not like neutral actors. Like Macron, uh, as we're recording this, uh, is in is, is meeting with Netanyahu and says that we need to build a coalition against Hamas. And and uh, Biden basically saying like no ceasefire until all of the hostages are freed. And having this like maximalist positions that kind of tells me that I don't understand the stake at hands, and that's what kind of worries me when I talk about the other fronts, so to speak, about like Hezbollah actually also entering the the scene, so to speak, but also just like the 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 hubris and the recklessness of like if you don't care about Palestinian lives, which I think uh, personally I am used to quote unquote because that's what I expect from these leaders. How are you also not caring about Israeli lives at this point? There's something very very I, I keep on repeating this term in my head, like just reckless about everything that's happening. In addition to, um, in addition to like the sheer intensity of the moment and just how difficult it is, I'm not saying like if they were sober-minded and whatnot that like a perfect solution is easy at hand, but it's like it 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 sure as hell doesn't look like what's happening right now and how they are acting right now and that that's where a lot of my my personal frustration is going to. Uh, but yeah, Dana, sorry you were saying. I, I just wanted to, this has been, uh, you know, s- somewhat illuminating. So in terms of like stakes, like going back to the original question, like obviously the human cost is the biggest stake. You know, that's my biggest concern. That's my lessening the thousands that will die. Another stake that we should think about is like, given the kind of dynamic you just described, Joey, and like the dehumanization of Palestinians that has been ongoing, but is like, partic- you know, at a fever pitch right now, we have to think about like, on the Palestinian side, how like the severity of what's happening in Gaza and like the images that are coming out of Gaza, like talking about making this existential, like the Palestinian side, already there was such a narrow space after all these years of brutalization to talk about a shared future. Like we're closing that space if we have not already closed it. You know, how do you go to a Palestinian at this point and talk about shared humanity and shared future? And you can make the logical strategic argument I think we're all making that like we're trying to avoid an existential disaster, but to them it's already happened. And this is this is already bad. So like I just worry because like the 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 voices who care about the humanity of both sides and like the voices who have that kind of radical empathy, there is no space for them and no traction for them at this point. And the worse it gets for people in Gaza 
or you know across all you know there are also you know raids of stuff in the west bank that tens of people have been killed as well so like the worse it gets the more and more existential it becomes on the palestinian side so like yeah i i think we should i don't know i don't have an answer to this but we think we need to think about we need to think about realistic expectations and think about the power differentials and think about who who has responsibility to put forward that kind of vision right now like somebody with like my position like i am away i have the luxury to be able to have this discussion so i like it's my responsibility it becomes then to state these things and then yeah like just thinking about it that way because the palestinian side is so incredibly brutalized uh, at this point like i don't even know how to have a discussion about this i just want to also mention the arab side like you're talking about it in terms of like other actors becoming involved in a regional conflict but like every time i think about the arab side i'm thinking about arab citizens in a lot of these places who are also reacting to these images who are also reacting to their own government's complicity like another stake we have which i, I actually don't think is like a you know i'm not i don't think that we should necessarily avoid it obviously i want to avoid unrest but like like what this will spark which as palestine in the past has sparked is anti-regime sentiment and anti-regime mobilization which you know on its face is a good thing because all these regimes are terrible but like also we have to think about like you know again the human cost and the instability and and, and the unrest and, and who comes to fill the vacuums <laughs> um when regimes are threatened and so like i think that has been kind of missing from the analysis as well like People, I mean, I don't know, people discount Arab lives so much that when they see thousands across the region, even in places like Oman, even in places like Qatar, and they think, oh, Arabs being Arabs, like, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter, they're, they're, they're out in the street again. But this has been such a generator of dissent in the past, and it will be in the future. So, yeah, I just want to bring that up as well. No, just so you know, if we are not terrified enough by this conversation already, I would just add that uh, the extreme um, right in Israel is uh, working very hard to use that moment in order to accelerate their, uh, you know, fulfillment of their agenda in the West Bank. I mean, it's a full ethnic cleansing in massive massive numbers which is really really frightening they are talking about um now just transferring uh, all of gaza's population to the sinai it's like to empty the 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 gaza street and in um, jerusalem they are repeatedly in the few past few days calling to mass uh, Jewish presence in uh, uh, the Temple Mount, Al-Aqsa Mosque, really deliberately trying to ignite a, a, a full religious war against the Muslim world. So those, I mean, combined together, I've never been more scared. I'm really, I'm, honestly, I've never been more scared in my life. This is like, it feels like uh, an apocalypse it's 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 um it's really scary that's the other um aspect of the recklessness uh that i it should honestly it says a lot because i'm uh, dana and i and others have been thinking about this non-stop for some time now obviously and even i did not even i feel like have the mental capacity to to factor in doing shit around oxa and seeing what happens kind of thing like just the, the recklessness of of it all is still something that i think baffles me and it does feel like i 
I don't think that then you mentioned like even even the reactions obviously on the streets, the quote unquote Arab streets. There's already a lot of discontent. There's already a lot of of. I mean, even CC seems to have understood that he can't completely stop them, and so there we have this conf. Of course, there's this concept of ten feet, which we've talked about on this podcast a few times. That some Arab regimes would allow this. Uh, like, yeah, letting off steam, like Arab regimes have done this in the past, you know, Bashar Assad has done this in the past. And, but the, the, the kind of the key thing about Tenfis that I think is often overlooked is that it sometimes just get out of hand. Like they can't always control the reaction. They can say, okay, clearly we cannot not tell them to take to the streets and maybe we will try and control them. Maybe we will, I don't know, cordon off a certain road and, you know, only go there and, you know, all of that stuff to try and manage it. But, you know, not to be too symbolic about it, I'm referencing the book Hamas Contained here by Tariq Bakoni. Like, at some point, you can't contain it, clearly, in, in the same way. And we're talking about a pretty sick, obviously, for different reasons and different political contexts here. There is a sort of a shared animosity towards various regimes. There is a sort of a, a to put it super, like extremely mildly here, dissatisfaction with the status quo that uh from Egypt at the very least like Egypt for me is one of those wild cards right now that I'm I'm kind of trying to pay attention to and like even even like on the Saudi side even there are so many different things that depending on what counts as a red line not to cross like I don't know I I I I sca- I'm, I shudder to even think of like if they do something to to Al-Aqsa Mosque what like the Saudis have to like it's there has to be there will have to be something in terms of just in terms of the pressure building in building up not to be like but i mean it does at times as you said you know as well feel apocalyptic but i i do try and in my mind <laughs> turn down the temperature because otherwise it goes in in different places that are not necessarily uh productive at least not for the purpose of this conversation yeah um firstly just i think hearing your role is not to like to sit with the immensity of the grief and the pain and the fear and the terror i think that only you were talking about like i've never been more afraid this is a very minor thing in the, in the whole comparison, but I think it also is a window towards a possible future. So just now, just this week in Barcelona, the police arrested um, a cross-national neo-Nazi network that was planning immediate attacks um, in the short-term future on both the Muslim and Jewish community here. And so I think there's there's, there's all these other emergent... Yeah, because we need to add the fucking Nazis to the mix. That's that's what needs to happen right now. 100%. And 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 of course, from from a, from there's all loads of other kind of undiscussed actors as well that see this as an incredible opportunity as well to achieve a lot. But to me, this is also at least working as an organizer here. This is the biggest opportunity. We have also a joint opportunity to confront this threat together from one position. Um, I'm really curious. On we hosted a conversation over a year back at the beginning of the invasion of Ukraine, which is called "Our Wounds Can Be Bridges," and it was a conversation between Ukrainian and Syrian activists trying to share common experiences and common possibilities and common windows in the struggle against Russian imperialism in that case. But I think the, the metaphor is wider, that our wounds can be bridges. And um, we spoke a little bit about different kind of openings, I think, of possibility in terms of the transformation in Israel right now, about this the, the possibility of that deep anger of the, the Netanyahu government, but also the settler project as potentially being a something that can be used to harness progressive change in the future. I'm curious, all of you, and also wanting to put into the room the listeners that we have where there's few projects like this one, I think, that have such a diverse group of listeners. We're talking about organizers and activists in many, many cities and countries around the world who are all internationalists at heart, working to understand that we are not alone in that in what we do and that everything that we, every wound touches each other in some way. So from that space of the audience, I'm curious that 
how would you address activists and organizers around the world from very different positions in terms of thinking through what are the possibilities that we have in this moment? What can we prioritize in our in our different contexts and different struggles, specifically relating to Israel-Palestine right now? Um, and what could be constructive of people to do is an open question I'd like to invite you in. Some of you have hinted, but I'm, I want to maybe name it more specifically. It's one of those things, I don't know who wants to go first, and it's also a difficult one, right? I... This is, this is going to be an indirect response, and I, I'm mostly saying this also to kind of get the ball rolling. Um, I'm always interested, the, the panel that Daniel mentioned, I, I'm the one who hosted it at the time between Ukrainians and, 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 and Syrians. And in that, in that case, it was, there was, there was an opportunity there, but it was also in many ways sort of easier to organize because the, you know, Russian imperialism is very straightforward. Uh, if you are Ukrainian, and if you are Syrian, it's like, it's, you know, black and white. It's very straightforward. It's, it's a binary, basically. Um, when it comes to, uh, the, the intersections between, and here I'm being extremely broad here because I have to, like Jewish experiences in the past decades around the world, for that matter, and Palestinian experiences in the past decades, obviously with Israel, Palestine being a sort of an axis in that, uh, in that story, we might say, but it taking different, different dimensions in the U.S. context, as I, I'm mentioning now in the chat, that's very specific to the U.S. of having, you know, Jewish Voice for Peace, if not now, other group of Jewish currents in terms of publications as well, saying things that are, for me, a very good sign that because I think not that long ago that they would not have been as vocal as they are now, like blocking the entrances to the White House, as we saw a few a few days ago. Uh, by, I think it was JVP, right? Or if not now, or both, I don't remember. That's something that is not nothing. And it was still in the beginning of seeing where that happens. And so without overcoating Gramsci, which I, I think I have sometimes tendency to do, but it's, it's this interregnum right now at times, it feels like it, maybe that's the optimistic side. Because, you know, Biden, that generation is kind of set in a certain framework not that I'm saying that everyone who's younger is necessarily better, as we know, even among within the dynamic within uh, Israeli Jewish society, for that matter, there are different factors in all of this. But to the extent that we can build on something that's already there, for me, uh, your 972 slash local call, your JVP, your Jewish currents, and you're just focusing on those that are more maybe like Jewish oriented. For me, as someone who is on the quote unquote other side, I, in this project, this thing that we're doing here is part of it, obviously, but trying to build something that doesn't quite exist, but can exist. Like it, it's not, in, it's not that impossible. If you see what I mean, to have those things that, to be frank, a lot of people that I know have these conversations anyway, they just don't do it publicly and they don't do it publicly because of the fear of retribution. If you are in Germany, for example, right now, if you're a Palestinian in Germany, or maybe because they are already in precarious conditions, like they are a Syrian refugee in Germany that's also very attentive to what's happening in Palestine. And they're worried that because they're a refugee, therefore, you know, visa status can be ruined and whatnot. And at the same time, you mix in the statements by conservative German, like the lead of the conservative party in Germany, basically saying that we will, as I said before, like we won't accept any uh, Palestinians from Gaza because we have enough anti-Semitic young men. And I'm sure he did not mean Nazis when he said that. I think he meant like people who look like me here. But like those those different dynamics and then your UK and your friends and the different ways in which like uh, in France, the interior minister is saying something as if you're not familiar with the context, it sounds ridiculous and it is ridiculous, but saying like anti-Semitism 
is not that different from hating cops and stuff like that. And then linking, uh, I'm not going to go into France now. I won't shut up. But uh, all of those different dynamics in all of those different places, some of which maybe are more difficult than others. But I do think that some of them, like the US one I mentioned, I think the UK to some extent as well, there are these different openings that are not nothing because those states are very influential, the US being the obvious one here, but not just the US. There, there are different things. I mean, I'll stop on that. But the fact that the, the 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 wife of the first minister of Scotland has to deal with this reality as well, because she's from Reza, and apparently this making no difference whatsoever in the calculation of a Macron or a Sunak or whatnot speaks a lot to how devalued Palestinians' lives are and to a wider extent, of course, Muslim and Arab lives are in this case. And so there are there is an opportunity there to build on existing movements from Black Lives Matter to what JVP does and all of those groups that I don't think is nothing. I think actually there is potential there that if for no other reason, uh, we can say maybe we're so desperate that we have to find a way forward. But I do think that there is a way forward, basically. Or I, I kind of have to believe that because otherwise, like, what's the point of doing this? Um, three things that come to mind, what should, I mean, concrete uh, ways of action. Uh, and I'm thinking about me as a person, as an activist, as a publicist, and also as a member of a broader camp. One is to put things in context. I think that this is incredibly important because the tendency, uh, the Israeli tendency to immediately like uh, treat uh, October 7th as something out of context, that if you even dare to speak about context, then you're justifying it somehow. But then it's not um, it's not an expression of how of, of your astonishment or grief. It's more than anything an expression of uh, the dehumanization of of Palestinians that you know uh, that this is not part of it, it it doesn't have a context it doesn't happen within a certain history within a certain relations uh, uh, but it's just something that Palestinians do so i think the first thing is to insist on the context uh, insisting on that Speaking about context is not justifying, it's understanding. And if we want to go to a different place, we need to understand uh, what happened um, here. The second thing is uh, solidarity with our Palestinian um, uh, citizens in Israel, because they are being, I mean, it's unbelievable, the uh, persecution right now against uh, Palestinian citizens. And it's really strange for me how so many Israelis that their heart is in the right place are just completely oblivious to the fact that they do not hear their Palestinian friend, friends in the public sphere because they are afraid to speak up. And with a good reason, I get uh, messages from Palestinian friends asking me to publish their words anonymously because they are afraid. And it's like the most humanistic messages but but that's the level of fear and without a palestinian jewish partnership inside 48 nothing is possible nothing that's the basis of i mean that's the root of uh, this is where it all began and without uh establishing establishing a solid basis for shared citizenship that is based on equality we will not be able to do anything else. And the third thing is to propose 
an articulated, clear political alternative. This is something that uh, the, the Israeli left is very shy of, I mean, of doing. It's like it's not the proper time. No, it is. It is the proper time. And say explicitly, uh, bluntly, what is all the alternative that we are suggesting? We cannot just continue just focusing on, on what not to do. Yeah, of course, genocide is a horrifying thing. I, I mean... But that's the easy way out, just calling not to commit a full-fledged genocide in, in, in Gaza. We also should be able to articulate step-by-step step a, prog- uh, a pragmatic suggestion to what should be done now. And unfortunately, we do not see it right now. I was just quickly, and yeah, then you can go if you want. I was, I, I put in the chat, like the, even the question, like, you know, the, if not now, when? And because it's something that I've reflected upon a lot in recent, well, days and weeks, but even before then, to be honest, because it, it's a sentence that, or it's a question, if you want, that's often taken a bit for granted. Like, oh, yes, we need to act. Clearly, we need to act, but it's also a very difficult place to be in mentally, uh, in your communities online, what have you. Because the, the outcome, like you can ask if not now, when, and it's okay, the answer is, well, clearly now, because we cannot wait for tomorrow or whatever. But it also means a certain amount of risks that are inevitable. Like it, and then it's, of course, it's like you have different, there's a hierarchy there. There's like a different level of risks depending on where you are, your, I don't know, your gender, your race, civil status, uh, legal rights, what have you, depending on where you are and whatnot. And so, this is certainly not a a judgment in that sense. I also have to take certain precautions. I have you know, these are things that we have to do. If not for us, sometimes it's like oh, for family back home or whatever. And that obviously makes the entire space of the possibility. Let's say that the thing that we're imagining, if you want, it makes it more difficult to create. But crucially, I think a lot of the time the paralysis ends up speaking for itself and it ends up becoming a end in itself is what I'm trying to say. Um, and I see in a lot of friends that I know for a fact, knowing them and working with them in the past, that they are capable of doing certain things that are, will be risky, but not that much riskier than what they say they're currently doing, which is like posting online mostly and resharing and, and kind of this feeling of almost like yelling into the void, kind of, kind of, we would say in Arabic, like yelling into the void kind of thing. Um, letting, letting off steam once again. But I also know that a number of them can, even anonymously, maybe, uh, taking certain precautions. I don't think they are fully cognizant, let's say, of how much they can do in terms of the potential of it all, because it feels overwhelming and it feels just too much in general. To the extent that this conversation, however many people listen to it and, and whatnot, and will try and promote it on social media, all of that stuff, hopefully also allows things to be nudged in a certain direction rather than in the other direction, or rather in a certain direction instead of towards paralysis. That's what I'm trying to say. Because paralysis, I think for us, is like, I certainly feel it a lot. I definitely understand it. I was until very recently, a very depressive person as well. Um, and I don't think that kind of ghost of the past is completely gone either. But I found that re- recognizing that some of the tools, and especially those, I think, I mean, I'm in Switzerland, as I said, 
those certain the privileges that I have in addition to the tools that I have and tools that if I don't have, I can learn or I can have someone teach me. And this is where the whole networking, of course, matters and community building and all of that can actually lead to situations where I can let random people in random places, maybe not publicly because they're afraid, but tell me in the same way that Oli, you mentioned, like some Palestinians would tell you, can you please publish this anonymously? Or yeah, you mentioned that like uh, Palestinian friends have also checked up on you, like how to do this. For me, it's like the difficulty is like, how do we make that more visible? How do we make that more public? Because those of us like in certain circles and whatnot, I can say all of all of the things like, you know, fuck Hezbollah, fuck Hamas, fuck the idea, fuck, fuck all of like anti all of those. And it wouldn't sound weird. It's like it's understood what I mean by that, even if I'm just using two words. But if you just say this online, then it's, it can be very much more difficult. And that's why that's that's where I feel like projects like this one and in a very small way, but can help nudge things in a certain direction. As I said, and I'll stop on that, but as I said, like, for me, it's just the, the two options that I see are either paralysis, which comes with like fear, paranoia, depression, helplessness, all of that stuff versus some aspect of that. Like it's never completely gone, but I'm also, I'm doing something about it. I'm channeling that energy to kind of be a bit cheesy about it, but I'm channeling that energy towards something that I feel other people, if not me, but other people in the moment need to hear, let's say, or need to read. And then they may do something completely different with it that I have no control over and I can't even picture what it is. But that's that's part of the philosophy of this project, if you want to put it that way. But uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah, I think you were, you were about to say something. I mean, a major difficulty here is the demise of the Palestinian uh, National Liberation Movement in its secular form, which leaves just Hamas as the kind of main vehicle of challenge uh, to Israel. And that is, it just makes it very difficult. So I don't think we can, like a one-state struggle, for example, is not possible without a significant political, social Palestinian mobilization. It can't come from Israelis or, or the very few Israelis that would be in favor of that now. It has to, and it's very difficult to, you know, Palestinians are kind of fragmented as a result of um, all the historical developments that we know, that thinking how this historic, how this comes about to create an alternative to the Palestinian Authority, but also to Hamas. Um, so that's one issue that is part of the current paralysis. I do think that the kind of the only constituency that I think they have some level of room to maneuver and agency, but also sufficient stake in Israeli society and and and, and awareness of Israeli society is as forty eight Palestinians. I mean, that's the only Palestinian constituency which I think has the 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 ability because they're not under military occupation or under siege or far away in the diaspora. That, that I mean, that's where I can I see interesting ideas and approaches coming out but it's i mean again i don't i mean it's also unfair to 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 put this on us on them but that's if i have some kind of optimism it's it's from that uh constituency as for the us and so forth i am not optimistic i think the uh 7th of october i mean i've seen people say that they they think this took us back a generation in terms of uh where Jewish American public opinion is and the ability of the left inside the Jewish American public opinion 
to mobilize. I don't know if that's uh, true, but what it is true that there is, a, and it, this is very visible, that that among the left, even people like who are very, you know, unambiguously not Zionist and, you know, probably yes, et cetera, experience uh, a real crisis when we talk about Jewish-American leftists. And uh, I'm talking about the the fact that so many of the statements on what happened kind of either, I seem to accept it as the logic of decolonization, but that's the outlier. But most of them just didn't mention the 7th of October, even though this is still, I mean, the hostages are still in Gaza and so forth. And that sense that, uh, and in, in some cases we're talking about activists who have family and friends in Israel, they cannot ignore that and they cannot expect other people to ignore that, even if they are perfectly aware of the bigger context and they are perfectly aware of, you know, where the root causes are, uh, you know, whether it's the Nakba or Israeli occupation and so forth. And that is a real crisis that, you know, that has, um, that has to be will have to be overcome in one way or another if if effective uh, mobilization is is to happen. Um, so yeah, because we're all speaking kind of from different positions, and some people are more um, embedded than others. So, like, just to be clear, like I'm I'm not leading movements. I mean, it's <laughs> I'm a person who teaches and writes. <laughs> That's the extent of what I do, but. Um, I, I've been thinking about like what individually is in my capacity to do and what I think that Palestinians in more privileged positions can do is in this kind of moment when we've like when we've seen the kind of collapse of solidarity in the places like the United States. I know I know you were you were mentioning, Joey, like some good and 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 powerful examples of like Jewish voices for peace or if not now, also um leading protests along with Palestinians. And that's all good. But we also have seen like, again, a a lot of that collapse as people have have retreated and have as people have been hurt by 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 reactions. I think what's important for someone like me or in my position to do is to look for the opportunities to build. So look for the people who have had a nuanced, empathetic reaction to what has happened since October 7th and say, okay, like, that's the point these are the people that we ally with and these are the people that we can continue to talk with. And then people that used to be part of this, you know, for lack of a better term, camp that saw a shared future for Israeli Jews and and Palestinians that have since fallen off or have retreated. I think it's a useful expenditure of our time to address those people and to, yeah, to, to, to find some common ground again. I mean, I'm thinking of particular activists, I don't want to name, but like, People who have expressed hurt and despair in the aftermath of October seventh and have retreated and like, but have been active until that point. Like, those aren't people we just dismiss. That those are people we have that conversation with. Uh, so, so that I mean, for me, I that's that's all I can do, because th- there is no theory of change with the octogenarian elite that is in power in the United States. There is no theory of change that includes the institutions at this point. I'm not sure that there is. Like I mean, like the formal political institutions. Like Biden is not going to save us. Most c- Congress people are idiots, and, and so like, I, I and, and I don't mean that as an insult. They are actually ignorant. <laughs> so I think that's all I can do in this position. But I do also want to say, it is important to note that like, an alternative to Hamas on the ground doesn't exist in terms of resisting Israel. Not because Palestinians lack the you know, ability to articulate that, but because 
the alternatives have been directly targeted by the Israeli state and by the international community. And and I think that's another thing where someone like in this position in the United States or in, in, in you know, the global north then has to also address, like, you're unhappy with Hamas being the bulwark of resistance and claiming that for themselves? Then, like, why did you imprison activists and why did you dismantle the PLO and why did you, you know, so, and, and, and holding even, I mean, it's not even holding accountability, holding anybody accountable. It's like even addressing that to be able to like have the correct context in the discussion. But yeah, everything I'm saying is like, just like so absurdly privileged because I, I'm not there and I'm, I'm not facing that fear for direct safety. So like, yeah, it's, it's not great, but instead of, Instead of not addressing that privilege, maybe we use it. Maybe we weaponize it. Thank you so much, everyone. There's so much that we that we brought to the table. I've been struggling to think of way, ways to close. Um, but I think actually the traditional question that is used to close this, this podcast is useful. Um, Dana, you said something that you just teach. And I think that's that's a massive understatement because teaching is is, is everything. And what we often ask people at the end of every podcast is what what's a book recommendation and what's a recommendation you make for people to learn more? And especially for folks in the most privileged context where the doom scroll is often the, the most common uh, use of learning. My question is, it would fit each of you individually in a very, very short sentence. It could be music, it could be a book, it could be anything, but what would you recommend to, to listeners as a way of something of giving you context or inspiration or hope or whatever you feel is important, but what would be one recommendation recommendation you would make? Feel free to go. Whoever wants to go first. So I'll, I'll recommend um, uh, Hill Cohen's book, uh, 1929, um, which deals with another moment of violence. And it's a, it's a wonderfully written and also challenging book, I think, to uh, you know everyone that will read it, uh, trying to make sense of how and why violence happens and how different people understand it. Um, it was yeah and and that is kind of it's on a very specific moment but i think it opened up questions which are relevant to the entire century of uh colonization and and conflict and violence uh so yeah warmly recommended it's it's an it's a book that gives me hope because it is that 1929 is a book about people killing each other but it's also about people saving each other Arabs saving Jews, Jews saving Arabs, and the book is dedicated to the people that saved other people, and that's that's what I see. That's where I see the hope. Um, I don't know if that this is something that gives hope, but um, I think that for understanding context, um, Bacconi's um interview with the New Yorker I thought was really useful. Just you know, short, quick. Well, I don't know how short, but uh, accessible. And his book is 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 good for um, you know more in depth as well. Hamas contained, but I also like I've been like thinking a lot about. I'm a big fan, Joey. Every time you ask me this question on this podcast, I say the same thing. I think, but I've been thinking a lot about Yassin Hashsalah and like this concept of Syrianization and like the political proletariat of the world. And and I I think it's it's useful to embed Palestine and what's happening in Palestine and Israel in a global context. And like, not to zoom out too far, but like. The, you know, the precedents that are set in this space can have global ramifications um, that we don't, I think, think about necessarily and that are d- super dangerous, obviously. So 
to think about our rights and and our our right to live in human dignity and have human have human dignity uh, um, in Israel Palestine and how that relates to other similar struggles, whether it's in Syria, whether it's in Ukraine and um, other places that have these kind of unmet sovereignty claims. Oh well, I I um, I mean now it's I'm under my uh, Iranian hat. I would. Um, recommend uh, The Colonel. It has been translated into English by Mahmoud Dolat Abadi, who is the most prominent Iranian uh, author. It's a brilliant book about how very justified uh, revolutions turn and end up turning against their own people and tearing them apart in so many different ways. And uh, I, I think it has a lot to say also to us in, in, in our region. No, thanks for that. Uh, I would add a couple of things. One on, on Hamas, we did an episode with Target. Um, I think it was last year on his book. Um, I, I'll see if I maybe have him on again at some point to talk about this, but we'll see. And the other thing is that Yassin, um is one of those guests that we've mentioned, uh, people that we have mentioned so many times on this podcast, and yet he hasn't been a guest yet, but he will soon. And Dana and I are actually working on having a uh, kind of a written conversation with him that we'll publish on the website at some point. As for the book, I'm, I'm never quite good at recommending one, but there is a book called The Holocaust and the Nakba, A New Grammar of Trauma and History, edited by Bashir Bashir, Amos Goldberg, and with a foreword by Elias Khoury, the Lebanese um, writer. And I haven't read all of it, so I'm, I'm, I'm always a bit hesitant with just recommending something that I haven't finished. But I think it's an interesting experiment, if you want, because comparisons are not good. And I would never compare the Holocaust and the Nakba. It just doesn't make much, much even sense to do so. But it's like, what does it even mean to speak about those two in the same sentence? Like, what, what does that even mean? And what does that look like? Uh, it, that book, uh, which is, has multiple authors and taking different angles to this tries and, and, and answer that question. I think it's at least worthy for those of us, as you said, Dana, who have sort of the privilege of resources and time, I guess, to some extent, um, or to various extent to engage, um, in this matter. And I will say, like, also echoing a bit that what Daniel said that, you know, you said I only teach, but like I've, um, you know, the, 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 the essay we wrote together for South South Movement, um, I've had folks from like various parts of Ukraine that are actively in conflict, uh, in the sense that Russia is literally bombing them, uh, mentioned that or has bombed them in the past. And so they're still living with the aftermath, like mentioned this to me as like a, basically a breath of fresh air. Uh, and this is something that I don't think we can, it's very like kind of the, the dilemma of what I feel the five of us do to various extent is it's difficult to see the result immediately and because at times it's so it's it's almost like it goes into the ether and we don't know where it goes but i've had enough interactions of people reacting positively in in context i didn't quite expect that in some sense when i'm able to remind myself of that is what keeps me going thank you so so much everyone for making the time to be here it's it's been it's it's a joy to to connect and to to speak and share, share our grief share our histories um and share our fragments of hope um Bless everyone listening to this cool conversation too, and and may we continue to meet each other despite everything. Thank you all. Thank you for having me. Thank you.